So when I think about culture and nutrition, I think about the importance of widening the conversation and remembering that we've got to look to each and every culture because there's inherent value in all of the foods that people bring to the table. I love that so much, Maya. I think there's also a dimension to it that's about the joy and power of food. It's about how do we have food not just be a tool for physical health and well-being, but for community health and well-being. This is Forces for Good, a podcast from B-Lab, the nonprofit network powering the global B Corp movement. I'm your host, Irving Chan Gomez. Driving positive impact for people and the planet takes collaboration, innovation, and inspiration. That's why we're partnering with the Known North America, one of the largest certified B corporations, to feature live conversations from the 2023 Aspen Ideas Festival. We're bringing you to the middle of this festival, so in the background you may hear people and vehicles passing by, the occasional smoothie bike running, and the joyful voices of our fellow attendees. This special series will share groundbreaking ideas and stories about putting purpose into action. Food is inextricably linked to connection, culture, and community. But it's also associated with morality, negative historical context, and judgment. Maya Feller is a nationally recognized registered dietitian nutritionist who brings a culturally sensitive approach to her work. Kurt Ellis is the CEO of Food Court, a nonprofit focus on food justice and education. They came together to explain why food and justice are linked and how to change the way we, as a society, approach nutrition. How are you this morning? <laughs> I'm well, thanks. How are you both doing? I'm great. Uh, Maya gave me a great tip to go for a walk up the hillside here in Aspen this morning. So that was how I started the day. And it did was you beautiful. go together? Or? We didn't. We went separately. I, I believe I was a bit earlier than Kurt. Maya's always go. a little bit ahead of me, as you'll see in the rest of the conversation. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad you got to take in the nature. It's really beautiful. Like just walking around here, I'm like, whoa, this is magic. Um, so before we dive like fully into it, I actually want to learn a little bit more about you as people, just to kind of like get a sense of who you are, how you got to the work, like what brought you to where you are today. So maybe Maya, can I start with you? Like, what was your journey to become a dietitian focused on this topic around inclusive nutrition? Absolutely. So I was volunteering and then training for the Boston Marathon and thinking about kind of, okay, what's next? And my running partner continued to end up in the hospital, once with hyponutremia, once with mm. hypernutremia. And I Googled nutrition for runners. And so, you know, I come from this super radical academic family. And I remember calling my dad after I did the Google search saying, oh, do you know people study nutrition? Maybe I'll do a certificate. And my dad was like, no, no, you'll get the terminal degree. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, no. I was like, I just want to figure out how she doesn't have to go to the hospital. And so I actually ended up going to NYU. And when I get to nutrition, I see that this field is overwhelmingly 
white, cis, het, female, upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because we're the people that are meant to translate the science of nutrition into actionable steps. And then when you look at the state of the nation and you see the people who have the highest non-communicable disease rates, mm. they are black, brown, indigenous folks. Yet the people that are serving folks are not at all representative. So it was really clear to me that after I finished studying, I was going to move into community work. And so I moved into running a program that was funded by the city and the Department of Mental Health and Hygiene in New York. It was a Ryan Wright program. And I stayed there, but burnt out fairly quickly because when you're serving such high needs populations, I mean, I was really working 80 hours a week. And then I went into private practice because it was a little bit more manageable. And in private practice work, I continued to really think about anti-bias patient-centered care and how to do that while accepting insurance, sliding my scale, you know, seeing different types of people to right. really make it all work. So that's, I mean, I, I came from a radical family. So of course I ended up back here. Perfect. Kurt, same question. Like what got you here? How did you get here? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was my upbringing. I, I grew up the youngest of six kids in Oregon, and my favorite childhood memories are the time I spent in my dad's vegetable garden. He mm-hmm. would plant 50 tomato plants a year, oh, and wow. I remember the feeling of being three years old and kind of experiencing the magic of my connection to him. Food has always been the currency of human connection, and mm-hmm. it was that for me as a child to my dad. But I also got hooked on the power of food as a source of joy and connection and relationships. So I became interested in food pretty quickly as a cultural issue and a political issue and came to see food as a prism that when you peer into it, you see our country's greatest challenges refracted. Mm -hmm. You see racial and social injustice. You see climate change. You see public health crisis. And for me, the question became, how do I take this thing I love, food, and build work that is about making food something that advances justice mm-hmm. and advances joy and advances health and well-being in the world and advances environmental sustainability? And so that was why I joined with five other co-founders and started this national organization called Food Corps that gives folks a chance to start building a meaningful career transforming food for kids. And increasingly, we do a whole lot of policy work and systems change work to actually try to create a future where every child has access to food education and nourishing meals in school every single day. It's really interesting. And something that resonates is this idea of like food as currency of human connection. I'm not from the US and like back home in Mexico, like it's part of who we are. Yeah. And it's interesting coming back and bringing friends and like kind of like being like, yeah, this is how we do things here. And like, it feels like reflecting back. I'm like, oh, yeah, like we're just thinking about our next meal. Like <laughs> breakfast is like, what are we having for lunch? But it's also because it's this time to like connect and like be with other and be with community. So I think I'm really excited for you both to be here because I feel like you bring different approaches and you're applying them in different ways, but are trying to get to the the same core, which is like, how do we achieve this goal of inclusive nutrition for everyone? So to help us get started, Maya, how do you define inclusive nutrition? 
and how do you apply it to your practice? That's an excellent question. And I don't know that this is a perfect definition, mainly because wellness at its core and nutrition at its core in the U.S. is not inclusive. Mm. Backgrounds that are not Anglo-American and Anglo-European are already at a disadvantage in the conversation because there is the overarching understanding and wrongful belief that those foods are not inherently healthy because Anglo-American and Anglo-European foods are the benchmark for how we want everyone to eat. Mm -hmm. So when I think about inclusive nutrition and what that means and how to define it, sometimes I think I'm at a loss. Because in order to be inclusive, it means that we have to think about food as food and remove the morality from the act of eating. In my book, Eating from Our Roots, one of the main focuses is reframing how we think about healthy food and including flavors from cultures around the world without a conversation or judgment on if it's good. Mm. And there are people that say, oh, is your book plant-based? Because that's good. Mm. Is your book pescatarian? Because that's good. Is your book all organic? Because that's good. Mm. And I say, no, my book is about food. It's about culture. It's about history. It's about taste. It's about flavor. Mm. That's amazing, Maya. And I think this concept of the morality of eating, like I want to dive a little deeper into that. Before we go there, Kurt, I know you mentioned like, the goal of your organization is like helping people reconnect with food, which is like almost this concept of like, it's, we're talking about food, not like necessarily like anything else. And you, you mentioned that it's around education and activism. Can you say why you chose that pathway? Yeah. So 50 million kids show up in school every day, not mm -hmm. just to learn, but to eat. Mm -hmm. And if we care about creating a playing field where every child has the nourishment they need to thrive, in particular kids who face the barriers of systemic racism and structural poverty, schools are an incredibly important place to work. And if we care about changing the food system to make it more just and healthful and sustainable, schools are also an incredibly powerful place to work. There are seven times more school cafeterias in America than there are McDonald's. Mm -hmm. So its leverage in the food system is pretty extraordinary. So the work Food Corps does begins with deep multi-year partnerships with schools and districts and communities where we can help those communities put in place their vision for hands-on food education, school gardens, cooking classes, kids getting a chance to put their hands on the dirt and experience food from the ground up, and nourishing school meals, meals that are as scratch-cooked, as locally sourced, as culturally affirming, as student-driven as possible. And then we do a lot of policy and advocacy work because ultimately these are systems that are shaped powerfully by state and federal policy. So our work runs the full spectrum of how you might shift the way that schools approach the basic work of nourishing kids every day and teaching kids about food. Because we're at the Aspen Ideas Festival, let's take a short break from this conversation to hear from other attendees. We asked, 
How can business have a positive impact on society? Here's one that echoes this episode's point about community. I think that businesses can create a positive impact on society by really digging in and engaging with their local community. Living here in Aspen, we see a lot of that, of just like the local small businesses giving back to our community by supporting different nonprofits and their goals and just like showing up for one another. Um, And it's cool when you have a business platform to do that and when you can use your business for good and, and like really creating connections and relationships within local communities. I feel like we lived in a time where, you know, like our food system can feel very far, you know, like I don't see where my food comes from. Even if I go to the supermarket or whatever, I buy it like it's just there. And I don't know, like all the journey that it takes for it to get to me or when I go to a restaurant or something like that. So can you paint a picture of more or less like I know this is a big task, but like how does our system looks like today? Yeah. I'll focus on the school food system in particular, because that's where Food Corps really concentrates our energy. But I think it's a reflection of a lot of what's true in the food system as a whole. One of the conversations that I attended earlier this week at Aspen that leaders from Danone and Walgreens and elsewhere were in, the panel was talking about who are your stakeholders and how do those stakeholders kind of drive your decision making. It got me thinking about who the stakeholders are who have shaped the way schools approach food in this country. And since school meal programs started in the wake of the Great Depression, at that time, they were really focused on how do we stabilize prices in the agricultural markets for farmers. So farmers were a key stakeholder. That has remained true. That's why we see milk on every lunch tray. That's why we see school meal programs that are in large part built around how do we use up the surplus agricultural commodities we produce the most of in this country, regardless of whether they're the most nutritious for kids. And school meal programs took shape around a set of stakeholders who were not kids. And yet kids actually should be the centerpiece of who has agency and power and voice Hmm. in how our school meal programs run. And I think the question for us in this generation is how do we reimagine that system with kids at the center and with justice at the center with an understanding that we have a moral responsibility and also an incredibly powerful strategic opportunity for the future of this country to nourish the next generation in a way that they have a chance to fulfill their dreams with no barriers. Hmm. I love that. That also really makes me think about that early incidence of disease, right? And so we usually say that there's this 10-year incubation period for anybody developing a non-communicable condition. So diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. And currently in the nation, we see more 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds with conditions that used to be more prevalent in the adult population. And if we go back to what you said, Kurt, which is that schools are a unique place to teach nutrition literacy, prioritize student wellness, think about thriving from a young age, then I have to say there will be a link between 
reducing disease burden in the populations that are most impacted. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, what I think is so powerful about the lens you bring to your work is a lot of where we've gone off track in this country in the nutrition conversation and the diet conversation has been when we have put blame on individuals and said, you need to make different choices. It is on you to behave differently and on you to protect your well-being. When the reality is the systems that surround our kids are what are the problem. It's not the kids who are the problem. It's the grown-ups. Right, right. We're, we're the ones who run that system, yeah, right? We, exactly. we, uh, we are the grown-ups here and we owe it to kids to show them how much we care. And that means not putting the responsibility on the individual child and saying, you don't know better. You need to learn differently. You need to make different choices, but instead set kids up to thrive right. by shifting the systems that surround them. Right. Mm. I love that. I like this concept of that it's coming up because like, it seems that, and I guess this is part of like the Western way of being and operating in this world, which is like, we take an issue, we only focus on that. And that's the only thing. And that's our way to like understand the world. And we forget that there's all these connections, that it's part of like a whole system. So it's how do we look at these from like a bigger picture, recognizing where things need to be looked at from a systemic perspective versus when things need to be looked more on like a localized individual basis case. We've talked a little bit about this, about how food and nutrition are incredibly linked to racial justice. Can Maya, perhaps, can you dive a little bit in like how you bring this connection in your work and how does that look like in practice with your patients? Yeah, that's a great question. Before I answer it, I will say one thing just to kind of dovetail on the last part of our conversation. When we think about nutrition, I like to remove the silo and work from the understanding that if someone is not fed, they can't do anything. You can't learn, you can't work. I mean, you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And so this ties into your question around racial justice. I often wonder if it's intentional, the redlining of black and brown and indigenous neighborhoods, because when people are hungry, they can't advocate for themselves. I kind of know the answer. (laughs) But if we're really going to talk about racial justice and food, we have to go back and talk about neighborhoods. We have to talk about access to healthcare. We have to talk about being fully insured. When I started as a dietitian, many of my patients were only going to city hospitals where in labor and delivery, laboring people were receiving one blanket, Mm. right? I wanna talk about the humanity of what happens when you're systematically and historically marginalized because you can't actually even have the conversation around food because your primary needs are not met. Where do we reinvest so that primary needs are met and food being one of them and nutrition being one of them, but also value around the life of Black, Brown, Indigenous folks, Mm. placing value on that, right? Acknowledging that We are citizens just as much as our Anglo-American and Anglo-European peers. I think in your panel yesterday, you mentioned something around this that I thought was really critical. Remembering and always bringing that conversation that this is part of like a whole. And how do we look at 
humans as whole individuals that need housing, that need care, that need nutrition, that need nourishment. I think something that I wanted to put this for you, Kurt, as well, is like, how do you also like bring that concept? How do you almost connect these different systems and recognize that they're all influencing the work that you do and how we go about that in schools? What's your approach to bring this into either the conversation or even just how you bring some of these programs into different communities? Fundamentally, this is justice work. Right. That is true from a health standpoint because we know that Black and Latina kids experience nutrition insecurity at twice the rate of white children in this country. We know that 9 million kids experience some degree of nutrition insecurity right now. So having schools be a reliable source of high-quality nourishment for children is critical. Mm -hmm. And yet in the lunchroom in most communities around the country, some kids are paying and some kids are not. And the mm -hmm. stigma and shame that comes from a school meal program that has problems of unpaid lunch debt, that has problems of mm. who gets access free and who doesn't, that needs to shift. So yeah. from a health standpoint and from a kind of basic standpoint of saying, let's make school meals free for every kid. If food is the currency of human connection, we need people controlling that system and making the decisions in that system who share life connections and experience connections and identity connections with students in their community. And then at the policy level, the question really is who has power and agency in the system? Is it kids and families or is it the vested interests in who benefits from the way school meal programs operate when they're not running with kids at the center of them? And so at every step of the way, this is justice work. And that has long been true. It was the Black Panther Party that introduced school breakfast programs on the West Coast. And it was the federal government playing catch up and trying to move the Black Panther Party to the margins that led to school breakfast actually being implemented across our education system. Mm. This is and has long been justice work. To me, I keep coming back to this concept of the morality of eating, because the same can be applied to that stigma and shame around the only thing that you might have access to. And almost like removing the systemic barriers that are preventing us from accessing that. I want to talk a little bit more about some other component of this that it's, I think, pretty critical. And it's come up a few times, which is how obviously food and nutrition is linked to culture. And I think like when thinking about this, why is it important to make that connection, to create those links and that understanding? If you Google the word healthy and you ask for an image, you're most likely to see salmon, blueberries, nuts, cruciferous vegetables of all colors. Yes, totally healthy. Yes, beautiful. However, reflects Anglo-American, Anglo-European food ways. Mm -hmm. If you Google the worst foods for you, which I've done, this is where you get the globe. You see everything else. Interesting, though, from a nutrition perspective, now as we start to do research and we look at herbs and spices and we think about the bioavailability of antioxidants, everyone's on the turmeric bandwagon. Did you know that if you add black pepper to the turmeric, it makes it more bioavailable? It's this incredible antioxidant that it's linked to longevity and brain health. Where did turmeric come from? Eat your quinoa, dive into your avocado. Where did those come from? 
mm-hmm. indigenous cultures. However, they're left out of the conversation until they receive their health halo and are inducted into the pearly gates of the wellness world. <laughs> so when I think about culture and nutrition, I think about the importance of widening the conversation and remembering that we've got to look to each and every culture because there's inherent value in all of the foods that people bring to the table. I love that so much, Maya. I think there's also a dimension to it that's about the joy and power of food. It's about how do we have food not just be a tool for physical health and well-being, but for community health and well-being, uh, mm-hmm. by which I mean when kids feel seen, they show up differently in school. Yes. And so I love when food shows up as a tool for helping kids just feel joyful and safe at school. And visiting a food course school in Lewiston, Maine a few weeks ago and visiting with the partners there from the St. Mary's Nutrition Center, which is our community partner, and from the school district, which is deeply invested in this work, and seeing how kids from the Somali immigrant diaspora experience their school when the cafeteria is serving food that, as one child put it, tastes like home. That's really, really powerful, really shifts what it's like to be a black child who's a new arrival living in the middle of Maine. School can start to feel like a place where you belong. And you know, it's interesting from a research perspective in nutrition is that we see that when people immigrate to the U.S. from anywhere in the world and they give up their cultural food patterns, they actually are worse off in terms of the health outcomes And mainly because they don't actually go to that Google image of what's healthy. And I'm going to be really careful here because I'm not going to do any bashing of any food. But what shows up at the center of their plate are things that are readily available and inexpensive and have a higher proportion of added sugars, fats and salts. And those are the things that are linked with the non-communicable conditions. So I love this bring the joy, bring the familiarity, because you're also bringing the nutrients. That's beautiful. Thank you both. I want to move to where we need to wrap up in a little bit, but we like to close this with a little call to action for our audiences. That is often business leaders, that is people in business. They might not be like the C-suite, but that they're trying to enact change within their organizations as well as individuals. So how can the business community tackle this topic of inclusive nutrition, obviously recognizing now that it goes beyond just food and what role do they need to play? It's a very big question. (laughs) When I think about inclusivity, I think about diversity in decision-making positions. Hmm. And I think about the importance of organizations, both big and small, committing to have diverse voices. Right. And what I would challenge people who are listening to this is to actually disrupt their thinking and realize that if we're truly going to serve and create a nutrition space that is both inclusive and equitable, we've got to, as Kurt said, ask questions, come with fresh eyes, and do some heart-centered thinking. Mm. Ooh. That's right. 
That's spot on. I think some of the changes we'll start to see from businesses as power shifts within companies will be different products showing up in the marketplace that are more responsive to different cultures than what the home foods are for folks around the country, making sure we're really putting products into the marketplace that taste like home. Hmm. And we need to see political leadership, advocacy from corporate leaders who know that this does not need to be a partisan issue. It really is a human issue to say that every child deserves great food, every family deserves great food. That's something we can all stand behind. Amazing. Thank you so much both. Cannot thank you enough for lending your time. Thanks, Irving. Thank Thanks, you. Maya. This is a special series from Forces for Good, featuring conversations recorded at the 2023 Aspen Ideas Festival and in partnership with Danone. If you'd like to learn more about B Corps and purpose-driven companies, visit bcorporation.net and listen to the rest of our season. We'll have more episodes about how business can drive positive impact and be a force for good. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your ratings and reviews help Forces for Good reach new audiences. So we thank you for your support. For more opportunities to engage with us, follow us on social media. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. This podcast was brought to you by B-Lab and Danone. Our team includes Sherry Jordan and Erin Brooks. Forces for Good is produced by Human Group Media. I'm your host, Irving Chan Gomez. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.